You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the Scripture readings this afternoon. Two of them. First of all, we're going to read from Psalm 38. The psalm has a title, A Psalm of David, A Petition. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plot deception. I am like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my foot slips. For I am about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many are those who are my vigorous enemies. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil slander me when I pursue what is good. O Lord, do not forsake me. Be not far from me, O my God. Come quickly to help me, O Lord, my Savior. We also go to the New Testament, to Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
But Christ is all and is and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. This afternoon we're looking at the Canons of Dort once again in our ongoing series of sermons. This afternoon we come to chapter 5 and articles 1 and 2. Let's read those together now. Article 1, the regenerate not free from indwelling sin. Those whom God, according to His purpose, calls into the fellowship of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by His Holy Spirit, He certainly sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. Article 2, Daily Sins of Weakness. Therefore, daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best works of the saints. These are for them a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and strive for the goal of perfection, until, at last, delivered from this body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. Beloved Congregation of Christ, our theological college in Hamilton, Ontario, has a very rigorous program. Part of this program is the weekly sermon session. When I was there, we dreaded sermon sessions. This was the time in which a student would present a sermon proposal. Present it in front of all the students and the professor. 
Two of his fellow students would first have a go at him, criticizing the sermon. And then, for over an hour, the preaching professor would have his turn. Well, once there was this second-year student. He was in his second year, so that means he'd never prepared a sermon proposal before, because this whole thing is something that starts in your second year. And this student was assigned a difficult text, Romans 6, 6-8. That text in Romans 6 speaks about having our old self, having been crucified with Christ. Now the problem was that there were other texts which speak about the old self being crucified with Christ. You see, there are places that speak about this crucifixion as an accomplished event, and then there are other places that speak about this crucifixion as a process. Now the student couldn't make heads or tails of this. And so he royally messed up his sermon proposal. He was worried about it to begin with. The other students would comfort him and, and tell him that the professor, well, don't worry, the professor always gives a mark between 65 and 70. Nobody gets higher than 70, and nobody, absolutely nobody, has ever gotten lower than 65. I can imagine how the student felt when he saw his mark, and it was far lower than 65. Well, back then, I didn't understand the difference between the death of our old nature and its dying. It seems that I'm not the only one who's struggled with understanding this. Over the years, I've heard from many people who don't get this. That's understandable. Right? Because in Lord's Day 33, in the Catechism, we confess that the true repentance or conversion of man is in the dying of the old nature. But then in Lord's Day 16, we confess that through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, has been put to death. So what is it? Is it dead or is it dying? It can't be both, can it? You can't blame the confessions for this confusion because the Bible itself does exactly the same thing. In one place, like Romans 6, the old nature has been crucified and put to death. But then in Ephesians 4, we're told to put off the old nature. That's written to Christians in a church, implying that the old nature is still there with these Christians, that it's still living and breathing. Uh, we find the same thing with the canons of Dort. As we begin chapter 5, we're confronted with what appears to be a paradox. Two things that are apparently contradictory. On the one hand, we confess that Christ, uh, God's redemptive work in Christ has resulted in our freedom from the dominion and slavery of sin. But on the other hand, we are not entirely free in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. Well, this is not just an abstract theological problem. Because there are practical consequences when this is not worked out. For instance, we can end up with what we can call an over-realized doctrine of salvation. This would be when somebody claims that Christians are completely set free from sin. 
There is no old nature. And if you do struggle with an old nature, then you're obviously not really regenerate. You're not there yet. On the other side, we can end up with what we can call an under-realized doctrine of salvation. This would be when somebody's idea of the Christian life is basically, God loves to forgive, I love to sin. It's a great combination. In such a scenario, we have no grasp of the progressive character of God's work in our lives. There's no growth. So picking one side or the other of the apparent paradox is not going to help. We need to resolve it. And how do we do that? Well, I'll answer that question this afternoon by asking and answering two other questions based on what we confess in Articles 1 and 2. First of all, in what sense have we been set free? And second of all, in what sense do we still struggle and why? One of the key passages to working out this paradox is is this one chapter in Colossians that we read together, Colossians 3. Here we find both of these elements present along with the clues we need to figure this all out. You know, if you were to, to preach a sermon just on this one chapter, you could have a theme set free, but not yet entirely. The certain and definite freedom is laid out by Paul in the first four verses. In chapter 2 already, he spoke about the believer's death with Christ. The believer has not only died with Christ, he's also risen with Christ, he's ascended into heaven with Christ. Uh, If you're going to summarize that, you could say that this is all about union with Christ. Believers are in Christ. By faith, they have been joined to Him, incorporated into Him. And so... According to verse 3 of chapter 3, our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. You may say that that's all well and good, but what does it mean? Well, Christ is our life before God. Because of our union with Christ, when God looks at us, He no longer sees our sins and our sinfulness, our guilt. He does not see the original sin we inherited from Adam or our original sins, or I mean our actual sins, pardon me. He does not see our guilt or corruption. Now when God looks at us, He only looks and sees Christ. His sacrifice. His obedience. His perfections. As a result of what Christ has done for us in our place, God has declared us to be right with Him. Our union with the crucified Christ through faith means that peace has been established between God and us. So in what sense have we been set free from the dominion and slavery of sin? Well, brothers and sisters, to help us in setting this out, we need to use a a couple of theological terms and categories. These terms help us to avoid confusion and they they give us pegs in our minds in which to hang important concepts. If we want to avoid confusion in our lives as believers, we need to have sound theology. And in this case, 
terms we need, the terms we need to use come right out of Scripture. So now listen carefully. The sense in which we have been set free from the dominion and slavery of sin has to do with justification. Now I know that's a word that's familiar to most of us. It's in our confessions. We hear it preached as well. What if you were asked to explain it or define it? Could you do it? What if somebody were to give you the definition as follows? Justification is the process by which God makes us right with Himself. Would you agree with that basic definition? Well, if you do, maybe you're in the wrong church because that's the Roman Catholic definition. We have to be clear about our terms. According to the Bible, justification is a one-time event where God declares the sinner to be righteous on the merits of Christ alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. In God's eyes, we have been set free from the dominion and slavery of sin. God no longer regards us as objects of wrath But because of Christ, we are objects of His love. God no longer regards us as His enemies, but as His children. No longer under the lordship of sin, but under the lordship of Christ. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We have been bought and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God. And so, we are not our own, but belong with body and soul to Jesus Christ. This is an objective truth. And it has implications for our lives. Our union with Christ and the justification that follows from that means that God has set us free from living a life of sin. Let me describe what that looks like. Living a life of sin means that you sin and you simply don't care. Living a life of sin means that you never repent. You may not even know what repentance means. And you never ask the Lord to forgive you. You never have remorse over your sin. If you ever go to God, it's because God is kind of like your spiritual 911 line. You you call Him when you're in trouble. But otherwise, you have nothing to do with Him. You're quite happy to keep on sinning with no end in sight. You're a slave to sin. And when it comes down to it, you like it that way. Now when we talk about living in sin, we quite often have a certain idea of what that looks like. We imagine a young man and a young woman having sex before marriage or living together before marriage. We we say that they're living in sin. But you know, there are many other ways to live in sin. Addictions oftentimes amount to living in sin particularly if there's no struggle with them. Living with unresolved conflict in our lives and refusing to do anything about it. That's living in sin. And many other examples could be added. Living in sin and union with Christ do not belong together. Living in sin and justification do not fit together. And just to be clear, 
It's not that our lifestyle is the basis for our justification or the ground of our justification. We know that it's only Christ. But when you live in sin, there is no fruit. And if there is no fruit, you have to wonder if there actually is a root. In the end, the person who unrepentantly lives in sin has to question whether he or she really believes in Jesus Christ. So our justification through faith in Christ results in freedom from a life of sin. That's the freedom that we confess in Article 1. When we are in Christ, we know that God has forgiven us our sins. He's accepted us as His children. When we are in Christ, we know that this new status means that we will not and we cannot live in sin. And that brings us to the second question this afternoon. And that's in, in what sense do we still struggle and why? Well, Article 1 ends by saying that we are not set free entirely in this life from the flesh and body of sin. First of all, let's be clear about our definitions again. The canons are simply using the language of Scripture when they speak of things like the flesh and the body of sin. Scripture uses this language in in passages like Romans 7. God is not saying that there is something inherently evil about our bodies of flesh and blood. He's not setting up an opposition between spiritual things and physical things as if the, the physical things are evil and the spiritual things are good. Now, some people have understood it this way. However, think about it. The Lord Jesus had, still does, have a physical body. It's not evil. We have physical bodies which have been redeemed by Christ. These physical bodies will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth, albeit in a glorified state. But they'll still be physical. Uh, If you do a careful study of Paul's epistles, you'll find that Paul uses those expressions, old man, flesh, body of sin. He uses them interchangeably. They all mean the same thing. They all refer to what we call the old nature, the remnants or leftovers of sin and sinful desires still living in us. So we could also summarize the last sentence of Article 1 by saying that we are not set free entirely in this life from the old nature. It's this old nature which results in daily sins of weakness. Not the word daily. In other words, this is a regular occurrence. And if you look in your life and you don't see that, then you're simply not looking hard enough or you're not being honest enough. If we're all honest and humble, we know that we have these daily sins of weakness. We know that even the the best works we do have defects clinging to them because of our old nature. All that we do, even as believers, is stained with sin. It's like having our hands coated in iodine. And everything we touch gets the red stain. Thankfully, 
the Holy Spirit. He is God's divine stain remover. But yet the fact remains that there still is a stain there in the first place. And our hands are still stained. We have to be honest about that. It's clear from both the Old and New Testament that believers still have an old nature with which they have to struggle. For an Old Testament example, look at David and what we read from Psalm 38. Of course, the psalm is one of the so-called penitential psalms. It seems here that David had committed some sin and he experienced God's physical discipline or what we call chastening as a result. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find that David is, is described as a man after God's own heart. Yet he sinned. Now someone might say that Psalm 38 probably gives us an example of a serious sin. It doesn't really speak of daily sins of weakness. That's okay. If David committed serious sins, why would he not also have committed daily sins of weakness? And if you look closely enough in the accounts of his life, you'll find them too. Now somebody else might come along and say that David is a poor example because he was living in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit was poured out. However, we know that the Holy Spirit was living in David. The fullness of the Holy Spirit. First Samuel 16.13 tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon David with power. In Psalm 51, another penitential psalm, probably more well known than Psalm 38, David prays that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him. The Holy Spirit lived in David and created faith in him. David had faith in the promises of God and was therefore incorporated into Christ, as believers today are. David had union with Christ by true faith. So the struggle between the old nature and the new nature is not something that just came along with the New Testament as if people never struggled with the old nature in the Old Testament or as if, on the other hand, perhaps people were never regenerated in the Old Testament. This struggle has always been there. However, it is true that we find a fuller description of this struggle in the New Testament. And we find that description in passages like Romans 7, which is probably the most well-known, and also Colossians 3. Let's just take Colossians 3. Having said that the, the old nature is dead, Paul goes on to exhort the Colossians to put their earthly nature to death. Here you see it. Both elements there. Dead and dying. It's dead, but put it to death. Well, he first wrote about justification, and now he's going to write about sanctification. Being justified in God's eyes means that a certain lifestyle has to result. We also heard about that this morning. Paul gives some concrete examples of those things that have to be put off. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says that you used to walk in those things. In other words, you used to 
live in those things. You used to have a life of sin. Your life was characterized by sin. No more. Now things are different. Now that you are united to Christ, you have to put off the old nature and put on the new nature that reflects who Christ is. Paul describes in great detail what that new nature looks like in this chapter. It speaks of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so on. So believers still struggle with sin in the sense that there, there is still progress to be made in sanctification. Now if you want a, a bare bones summary of this sermon and its two points, it would look like this. Justification, we've been set free. Sanctification, we are being set free. Justification, one-time declaration. Sanctification, ongoing process. You see, justification, as somebody once put it, is the peace that starts the war. Now the question comes, why? Why does God let us struggle? Why does He let us have this war with our old nature? Well, the canons give a four-part answer in Article 2. The first reason is that we have these things in order to humble us. When we reflect on our daily sins of weakness, constantly we're driven to God. We know that there is nothing in us that would make God accept us. Even as we are in Christ, we remain sinners. We know that we cannot do without God and His grace for us in Christ. The second reason is that we would flee to the crucified Christ. How easily we might forget the cross if not for our our daily sins of weakness. We would easily forget the reason why Christ suffered and, and why He died. Daily fleeing to the cross impresses on our hearts and impresses on our minds the greatness of our Savior and, and the greatness of His work. The fact that He drank hell dry for us. Third, our daily sins of weakness are a constant reason to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness. Well, prayer we know about. But what are these holy exercises of godliness? Well, that's an expression that comes from 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. In the NIV it says there, train yourself to be godly. In that passage in 1 Timothy 4, Paul was comparing the Christian life to, to an athlete in ancient Greece. So like an athlete does everything he can to win, so believers too, they, they spare no effort to reach the goal of godliness. Like an athlete takes off every weight and every burden that might slow him down, might hamper him. So too, believers have to take off everything that could slow down their spiritual progress. The Lord Jesus described that as radical amputation 
Right? If anything is causing you sin, cut it off. And finally, like an athlete has his eye only on the goal, so too believers should be constantly aiming at their spiritual objective of becoming who God has called them to be in Christ. A lot more could be said about these holy exercises of godliness and what they all involve. But I think that that could be something that you could reflect on for yourself. We come to the fourth thing. Daily sins of weakness are a reason, a constant reason for us to long for and strive for the goal of perfection in the life to come. It's God's will that these things would be reminders that greater glory is coming. If God had given us the full measure of our salvation at the beginning of our Christian life, there would be nothing to look forward to in the future, nothing to motivate us. But as it is now, our daily sins of weakness remind us that Christ is coming. Our daily sins of weakness remind us that someday we will be delivered in the fullest sense imaginable And we, imagine this thought, we will reign with King Jesus. Now I realize that the teaching in these two articles may not be the easiest thing to understand. But you have to understand it. Because not understanding it has consequences. Not understanding it leads to confusion. Even worse, it could lead to disillusionment. Potentially even to depression. When we know that the Christian life is characterized by struggle, that it's through suffering, through struggling, that we attain glory, then we're being realistic and honest. But that doesn't mean that we have to be pessimistic either. Sometimes people will use this teaching, or or better yet, better said, abuse this teaching to justify continuing in sin, whatever that sin might be. Oh, we all have our daily sins and struggles, so, you know, it's okay, it's no big deal. That's defeatist. That does not fit either with what the Bible teaches. You can never be satisfied with the status quo in your walk with the Lord. There must always be a a struggle, and a desire to have victory over sin. And as you move on, as you grow in the Lord, the Lord will give more and more victory over daily sins of weakness. We should pray for that. We should expect it. And we will see it. Like I said, in this sermon, we've covered some tough theology. That's okay, because this is theology that matters for how you live your life before God. Now the canons of Dort are not a theologian's playground. They're the expression of the truth of God for all who believe. Rather than being a a playground for theologians, they are the air that all Christians need to breathe in order to live for God's glory. May we all do that. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.ca.
www.ontheroad.org.